We are back. Because we have an appetite for the quirky on this program, we, we like to go, uh, well, into the fringes sometimes, which prompted us some years back to, to do part of a segment looking at concrete, which is a miraculous substance. And before you click the dial, let me say, hold on, hold on. You're going to be surprised what we're going to talk about next. This comes from an, an email that was sent to us by Mr. Pablo Marovich. This comes from the Business Insider, and the title is Ancient Roman Concrete Was Incredibly Strong. Scientists May Have Just Figured Out Why. The article is accompanied by a picture of the Pantheon, one of the great tourist sites to see in the ancient city of Rome. When I was in Rome as a boy with my folks, we certainly paid a visit to this remarkable structure, which is composed of Roman concrete. When I saw it, nigh on to a half century ago, it looked pretty good. It looked a hell of a lot better than some of the abutments I've seen here in California. Notes the piece. It is one of the great mysteries of archaeology. How did the Romans create concrete so strong that their buildings are still standing 2,000 years later? The question has long puzzled scientists not only because the concrete has incredible strength, but because it also seems to be able to self-heal, meaning cracks inexplicably disappear over time. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Pantheon in Rome is a perfect example of this. The structure was built around AD 126 and has been in constant use since. But its intricate domes look brand new even today. What made this material so special? A group of scientists from MIT and Harvard published their results in a peer-reviewed journal Science Advances in January 6th because they may have cracked the mystery. No pun intended. The secret, scientists say, is in little white flecks that are found in the concrete. They're called lime clasts. Although these flecks are seen pretty much in every Roman structure, they've been dismissed as imperfections in the building material. Any concrete, you should note, is made up of a few basic elements, a liquid binding agent called mortar, and aggregates, typically loose gravel, sand, or small rocks. Roman mortar was made using lime, a chemical created by heating limestone. Now, my understanding is to this day they put lime in concrete, but I don't know. I'm not an engineer. Notes the article, the general belief was that the lime was first mixed with water before adding the aggregates. The flecks were seen as signs the mortar was not well mixed by the builders. But, according to Admir Masik, author of the research and an MIT professor of civil and environmental engineering, well, he wasn't really convinced it was an imperfection. He said, if the Romans put so much effort into making an outstanding construction material, following all the detailed recipes that had been optimized over the course of many centuries, why would they put so little effort into ensuring the process of a well-mixed final product? After studying the flux more closely, Masik and his team concluded they were likely to have been put there on purpose. This, they found, was crucial to the self-healing property of the concrete. Now, these little flecks of lime class are quite brittle. That's a good thing. As cracks appear in the concrete, these clasts crumble and release calcium that can travel through the fracture. When water seeps into the cracks, the calcium reacts with the water, creating new crystals. These crystals automatically fill in the cracks and fix the structure. They note that scientists believe this could only happen if the lime was added to the concrete in its heated, powdered form. Right after it's heated, lime is very reactive and can be dangerous. 
It is extremely dehydrated at this point, so as soon as this chemical comes into contact with water, it incorporates that back into its chemical structure to make a more stable molecule. That reaction releases a lot of energy. As anyone who's ever poured concrete knows. The article notes that when people make concrete, today anyway, they usually add water to the powdered lime first, then let it cool down, then add the aggregates. But by mixing the lime with the aggregates, then adding the water, the Romans created a controlled explosion, raising the heat in the mix just enough to change the concrete's chemical composition, which led to the incorporation of the lime class, according to Dr. Masick. The scientists put their theory to the test. They made up concrete blocks, one using the powdered lime, and one using a more modern version of the concrete that did not. Then they deliberately smashed the blocks to create cracks. They found the Roman formulation was repaired within a couple of weeks under a drizzle of water. The modern formulation did not. So, when is Home Depot going to start stocking Roman concrete? We don't know. But I suspect, Mr. Moon, we've just given a great idea to some of our more business-minded listeners out there to uh, maybe, uh, you know, go down this road. I have to confess, I don't think this article explained the process of making concrete well enough to satisfy me. So if you're a civil engineer listening to this program and have some insights into this, be sure to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and flesh out some details, will you? And in a more serious note, we want to applaud California's Attorney General Rob Bonta. He is currently suing drug makers over the fact that they were not able to resist inflating prices on insulin. According to Kaiser Health News, California Attorney General Rob Bonta is suing the six major companies that dominate the U.S. insulin market, ratcheting up the state's assault on a profitable industry that artificially jacked up prices, making the indispensable drug less accessible for diabetic patients. The 47-page civil complaint alleges three pharmaceutical companies that control the insulin market, Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk, are violating California law by unfairly and illegally driving up the cost of the drug. It also targets three distribution middlemen known as pharmacy benefit managers, CVS, Caremark, Express Scripts, and Optum Rx. In the lawsuit, Bonta argued that prices have skyrocketed and that some patients have been forced to ration their medicine or forego buying insulin altogether, which is a terrifying thought. The Attorney General said the price of a vial of insulin, which diabetics rely on to control their blood sugar, was $25 a couple of decades ago, but is now about $300. I do have to note that a couple of decades ago, things were a lot cheaper. And I don't know what this 8 to 1 increase would look like if you factored in cost of living, but, you know, it's, it's a little less offensive, but still out of line. In 2011, the U.S. Senate investigated this matter, and they concluded that the insulin pen made by Novo Nordisk had jumped 50%, 52%, in fact, from 2014 to 2019. And the price of a rapid-acting pen from Sanofi shot up 70% from 2013 to 2017. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom has launched an ambitious plan to put the nation's most populous state in the business of making its own brand of insulin as a way to bring down prices for roughly for the roughly 3.2 million diabetic Californians. The article closes by noting there isn't much transparency in how drug prices are set in the United States. Manufacturers are predominantly to blame for high drug costs because they set the list prices. 
A growing body of research also indicates that pharmaceutical middlemen are a prime driver of high patient drug costs. Prices is critical to target the entire supply chain, say experts. As reported on this program back circa the year 2005, the federal government did a, um, a giveaway to Big Pharma, passing a law that was written by the pharmaceutical industry themselves that allowed them to eliminate competitive pricing and pretty much just handed them the car keys. This law was promoted by, I think, a lot of Republicans who like to posture as though they want to increase competition because that's the American way, but in fact, do everything in their power to restrict the free market in order to favor big corporations. That's just the way it is. And unfortunately, going from bad to worse, we have, uh, in this case, an op-ed piece I want to quote from extensively. It's by a man named Peter Pischke. He's described as a disabled freelance journalist who has covered the opioid crisis. Notes Mr. Pischke, how many innocent lives must be harmed before the CDC changes course on prescription opioids? The CDC recently released opioid guidelines, a recommendation for physician prescribing practices, and an update to an original 2016 document which wrongheadedly attempted and failed to solve the opioid crisis by preventing physicians from prescribing pain medications to patients. We've talked about this in the program many times, and I would not dispute a word in what he just said, or what I just said, quoting from him. He goes on, Six years later, with millions harmed, the CDC emphasizes that its guidelines should never be used for an, quote, inflexible, rigid standard of care, unquote, and, quote, patient abandonment, unquote. However, notes Mr. Pischke, if you read the fine print, that is precisely what I see the CDC advocating for. He notes, the original guidelines came about from a lethal combination of bureaucratic arrogance and do-goodery. The organization, referring to the CDC, was foolishly trying to stop substance abuse by making prescribing more difficult and thus the drugs more challenging to acquire, he says, on the black market. I would have stopped the sentence right there at acquire. Because as we pointed out in this program, there is an opioid crisis, although we refer to it as the so-called opioid crisis because the implication that it's doctors prescribing practices and prescription medicines that are killing people is ridiculously false. People are dying in America in droves because they're buying illegal drugs. And I'm quite certain in no small part due to the fact that it is more difficult to obtain prescription medications that they need. The piece notes that according to the Journal of Pain Research, data suggests that the overdose crisis is largely an unintended consequence of drug prohibition, to which I say hallelujah. Notes Pischke, as a reporter and disabled pain patient, I've witnessed the heart-wrenching effects on abandoned patients and their loved ones when they're denied these essential medications just for the crime of getting sick. And yes, contrary To whatever those on Capitol Hill or institutions, including the Florida Department of Health, have suggested, these medications are irreplaceable, necessary element to make modern medicine possible. I don't know how many articles I've read that talk about how, oh, you know, instead of using opioids, we're just going to use other, you know, uh, non-prescription pain relievers, NSAIDs and the like, and and that'll that'll, that'll get the job done. No. Notes Pischke, among these drastic changes was a limit for acute pain at three days. Yeah, I guess if you have pain on the fourth day, you're, you're out of luck. And they noted a new hard limitation at 90 morphine milligram equivalents, MMEs, for prescriptions, 
substantiating an unscientific term not used by anyone but the CDC. I have to admit, I was unfamiliar with that term until I read this piece. Although, as a doctor, I understand the concept. Pischke notes, this not only establishes an absurdly low dose for some patients, but insinuates that the needs for pain treatment from patient to patient are the same, regardless of individual metabolism and body chemistry. He says, whatever the CDC's intentions, the document was interpreted by 38 state legislatures, the federal government, law enforcement, Congress, every state medical board, hospitals, and countries worldwide as a hard rule and a clarion call for an open season on pain patients and their prescribers. Thus was born an opioid prohibition as physicians understood that they prescribed opioids at the risk of job loss and incarceration. Studies and qualitative evidence have overwhelmingly shown that many, perhaps most physicians now refuse to take on new patients who need opioids. He states later in the piece that law enforcement agencies, especially the DEA, are out of control, with the DEA routinely caught releasing safety plans for the patients of arrested physicians that simply direct pain patients to the nearest emergency room. If that sounds like a recipe for a horror show, he says that's because it is. The impact felt by physicians is so severe that it forced the Supreme Court recently in Rouen versus United States to push back against law enforcement in favor of physicians prescribing privileges. Anyway, I suggested you find this article and read it, my dear listener. The new guidelines, which are supposed to repair uh, the situation with opioids, has lowered the limit down to 50 morphine milligram equivalents from 90. Thus, he says, the 2022 CDC guidelines are more stringent on opioids than the 2016 guidelines, not less. By the way, the updated guidelines put out by the CDC recommend the uses of prescription monitoring programs and divvying up naloxone, the opioid overdose medicine for all prescriptions, which he, he notes sounds great in theory, but increases the potential legal liability for prescribers. We intend to bring back some actual experts on this topic who we've spoken to before, both Dr. Howard McKinney, pharmacologist extraordinaire, and a good friend of ours, Dr. Roger Orman, an anesthesiologist who treats pain patients in his practice. You know, as I see it, if you break your leg, you go to the hospital to get treated, not the police station. If you're a chronic pain patient, you want to be managed by what doctors think they should prescribe for you, not what the DEA says. After all, in this country, we've been running a war on drugs now since Richard Nixon was president. In spite of that fact, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. I would put that in quotes. It is an opioid crisis, but it has to do with people overdosing on Chinese fentanyl which is currently making its way into everything because it's cheap and the Chinese are exporting it to this country in vast quantities. It's generally coming in through illegal drug channels through Latin America, which I I think it's fair to say at this point, the war on drugs has failed to stem. All right, Ms. Vermillion, how much time do we have left? About 12 and a half minutes, roughly. You know, I have a bunch of stuff piled up here we could go into, but a lot of it's pretty negative and Today's show's not been negative at all. Well, hardly. Well, actually, it has been. Well, except for the opioid part and the insulin part. Okay, I've got a bunch of stuff we could do. It, it tends to be really serious stuff, hard-hitting stuff, and I'm, I'm just not in the mood. So, luckily, uh, The Week magazine has just made an appearance, and it's always good for a lot of material because it's concise and it's comprehensive, so I'm going to open up its pages and see what we can do. In fact, first thing I'm going to do 
which we so often do, is take their good week four, bad week four section and morph that into our version of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes I can't believe our good fortune in this program to have interviewed so many great interviewees over the year, including the ugly from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, actor Eli Wallach, who spoke to us a decade and a half ago or so. That was a memorable interview, and if you didn't hear that when it aired, dear listener, please find it on our website at radioparallax.com. But back to our version of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. According to The Week magazine... It was a good week for rebranding recently when the U.S. State Department announced it's going to start referring to the nation of Turkey as Turkia. Professor Erdog Goknar, who sounds pretty Turkish, at Duke University explained that the association of the country with the bird was a denigrating legacy of the colonial era. I don't think so, but, you know, it's just as easy to call it Turkia as Turkey. So that's what we'll do. We are not, however, going to refer to Burma as Myanmar. That's an editorial decision we've made on our own. I don't believe they celebrate Thanksgiving in Turkey. That would get rather confusing. Well, not anymore. Now that you mention it, I do wonder if you can get a good turkey sandwich in Istanbul. Hmm. We would know it was also a bad week last week for rebranding with the news that after the January 6th committee released an internal White House email relaying the fact that then-President Trump had a desire to trademark the phrase rigged election. Yes, the Donald apparently wrote his son-in-law and aide, Jared Kushner. Guys, can we do ASP, please? I guess, in his thinking, every time he used the phrase rigged election in one of his speeches, he could probably find a way to get uh, some kind of Royalty fee. I I don't know. I I don't have good insight into the mind of the orange man. And it was an ugly week last week for what we're tempted to call rebranding, but more properly probably has to be called marketing. After the TV debut of Power Slap, a new slap fighting contest devised by the Ultimate Fighting Championship president Dana White, got postponed after a video surfaced, and I swear we're not making this up, of White slapping his wife twice in Mexico. Said White, I'm embarrassed. Presumably his wife is bruised. No, Mr. Miller, I'm pretty sure he's not going to rebrand Power Slap as Wife Slap. Now, the week has a section every every issue that's titled Only in America, and we often re, uh, rebrand those into the good and the bad and the ugly, but I'm going to report them today as items from Only in America in the week, with number one being as follows. The University of Southern California's School of Social Work will no longer refer to the world beyond the classroom as the field. An email to staff and students explained that such a term as fieldwork or going into the field may have connotations for descendants of slavery or immigrant workers that are not benign. The new preferred term, and we just dot, 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 we'll just fill in the blank on this one. The new preferred term, make a guess, If you guess the new preferred term would be the practicum, go to the head of the class. You know, I I just can't get out of my mind the idea of ultimate fighting championship president Dana White 
traveling to USC and slapping the president of the School of Social Work, after which he would say, thanks, I needed that. And yes, those of a certain age remember that was a running commercial on network television back in the day. Although neither Ms. Miller nor I can remember what it was for. And our second item comes from the goofball state of Arizona, wherein there is a proposed bill in the legislature that would ban teachers from using students' preferred pronouns that differ from their biological sex without written parental consent. The bill's sponsor, Republican John Kavanaugh, dismissed concerns that some students might find it hard to obtain consent for the new pronouns. Kavanaugh said the parents can't be kept in the dark about their kids' gender issues. Is this an issue that really requires legal redress in Arizona? I don't think so. But anyway, a story we've, we've avoided up to this point, I think for good reason, is um, the tale of the lying congressman. George Santos. I mean, everybody I know seems to be talking about it, and I just, I wanted to walk away, but I I guess I'm not able to. I mean, I try to get out, and they keep pulling me back in. Anyway, because the story is so out there, I guess we're going to have to address it a little bit. Writing about the circus surrounding Congressman Santos in the New York Times, Nicholas Fondos said, We've become accustomed in America to a certain level of truth-stretching by politicians. But even in this post-Trump era of alternative facts, it's hard to find a case quite like that of George Santos, who seems to have fabricated his entire life story. He lied about graduating from a prestigious private high school and two colleges that have no record of his attendance. He lied about working for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. While running for office in a heavily Jewish district on Long Island, Santos claimed his grandparents were Jews from Ukraine who fled to Brazil to escape the Nazis. But wouldn't you know it, genealogy records show no trace of Jewish heritage. Santos boasted of founding a non-existent animal rescue charity and even once said the 9-11 attacks caused my mother's death when in fact she died in 2016. I guess it could have been a, a very delayed death. He also didn't disclose that he's wanted in Brazil for stealing a checkbook. He did that in 2008 and used it to buy $700 worth of clothes. Now, a lot of Democrats are saying it's time to expel this guy from Congress for just being a fraud through and through, but apparently the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, who has a narrow majority, needs every vote he can get and is not likely to, uh, to do that. Even National Review pointed out that uh, Santos evidently loaned his campaign $700,000 last year, but can't explain where he got the money. It does appear that one of the largest donors to his campaign is related to a Russian oligarch. And by the way, let's take a moment to to refer to uh, the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. The new Speaker was subpoenaed to appear before the January 6th committee and declined. Perhaps not surprisingly, the new Speaker of the House has not been charged by the House for contempt of Congress. Question has to arise. How can you be the Speaker of the House, and when a House committee subpoenas you, you just ignore it? Now, the January 6th uh, committee did subpoena some people, and when they thumbed their nose at them, they pursued criminal charges of contempt of Congress, like against for Steve Bannon. Of course, Bannon has his sentence currently pending on appeal. And frankly, I don't feel like bagging on Merrick Garland some more for the fact that he um, is still wondering what to do about Donald J. Trump. They've convicted, what, like 900 people at this point? They can't go after the guy that organized the riot? The mind reels. 
All right. I don't know that this had made an appearance at the electronics, uh, consumer electronics show in Vegas or the CES, whatever they're calling it these days. But an item from the week really caught my attention under a headline titled Innovation of the Week. The photograph accompanying the piece shows what appears to be a, uh, a stationary bicycle with a desk in front of it. <laughs> and the text is as follows. The bike desk unveiled this week comes with a twist. As you pedal, it captures your kinetic energy to allow you to work, exercise, and generate your, your own clean electricity all at once, wrote Justine Kalma in The Verge. Produced by Acre, a company known mainly as a computer maker, and called the eConnect BD3, and I don't know why, the bike, of course, has an app to track calories burned, time pedaled, and watts generated. Notes the piece, don't expect to power your house with it. Using the company's own numbers, it would note that by pedaling for an hour, you might prevent emissions equivalent to walking rather than driving 0.13 miles in a gas-fired car. And no, we're not sure what the hell math is involved in that calculation. It is reportedly made out of recycled plastics and will retail for $999 when it becomes available in Taiwan this April and worldwide in June. I gotta say... This picture completely reminds me of Woody Allen's, I think it's Take the Money and Run, where he's a products tester, and one of the products he was testing was a desk where you'd have weights attached to the phone, so you'd answer the phone, you'd be pulling barbells up, and and, 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 it, and it had a stationary bike attached to it. Man, Woody Allen was 50 years ahead of his time on this. And according to the Washington Post, marijuana use is now legal in 21 states the District of Columbia, and two U.S. territories. I'm not sure which ones. The total tax revenue on marijuana for legal pot sales through the first three months of 2022 hit $11.2 billion. And yes, that's described as tax revenue, not taxable revenue. And in a final item for today's program, which unfortunately I don't believe Radio Parallax can take any credit for, despite the fact that on many, many, many occasions on this show we pointed out that Global warming and environmental destruction worldwide are both inextricably linked the world's growth in population. So we are at least relieved to be able to report that a Ugandan farmer who's fathered 102 children said he's done having kids because they're too expensive. Yes, apparently Musa Hasaya, age 67, says that he's asked his 12 wives to go on birth control pills because he's having a hard time feeding his massive family, which does include 568 grandchildren. Noted Mr. Hasaya, my income has become lower and lower over the years due to the rising cost of living, and my family has become bigger and bigger. Well, you're darn right. I don't want to hear any more stories complaining about being a breadwinner here in America. Although he is certainly late to the game when it comes to population control, we're glad to see him aboard. That about does it for today's program. We have forward-promoted numerous guests we are anxious to bring to you, and I'm not going to do it again today. I only want to say they are in the pipeline, and we will get to them, including some really cool people I'd like to tell you about. But you know what? I'm not going to do it. And that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and uh, we'll see you next week and the week after that, we hope, and the week after that, we're going to bring you some really interesting guests. I keep saying that, and, uh, well, we're going to do it. Just, you got to tune in. <laughs>